Brother. Good morning, church family. My name is Ozan. I'm trying not to speak too loud just yet. So normally they have the microphone over the ears, and I asked for the lapel mic, and they're accommodating me. I'm very thankful for that, because that thing follows you everywhere you go. It's just right there, and you just can't seem to get that thing out of your mind. I don't know how, how Pastor Nick does this. Well, one of the things that my brother Michael mentioned is he's very, he's very thankful for the gift of evangelism that, that God is, has you know, impressed upon me. And it's a little bit interesting that he would say that since this brother of mine has got one of the most pronounced gifts of evangelism that I've seen in my life. And sometimes we can create this, this perception that maybe somebody is evangelistic in the way that they present to a congregation. There, there are many perceptions that are generated when somebody comes up in front of a congregation and preaches the unadulterated word of God. One of them is evangelism. One of them might be leadership, you know, and so forth. And sometimes it's just simply not true. Sometimes people are really good at presenting the gospel message, but maybe they're, they're not as good in certain areas of administration. Maybe they're not as good in certain areas of leadership and so forth. And so it is, it's one of those things that I really want to talk about today. Pastor Nick had reached out to me and asked if I'd be willing to come and present the message this morning. And he, he, he would offer me some subjects to preach on, but he did ask me, is there something you particularly want to preach on? And I knew that the two pastors were going to be out at man camp, as well as other leaders, so I thought this would be a really good opportunity to talk about pastoral ministry, and more than just pastoral ministry, leadership in general, and how God's children are to conduct themselves among his congregation. And we live in a culture that has a tendency of of sort of warping what church ministry looks like. There's a white horse that's going to show up here in just a minute. Sometimes these pastors will will be presented as sort of a knight in shining armor on the white steed. Am I right? They're out and they're conquering. You give them a sword, you give them a helmet, and they're just out and they're doing their thing. And so we've created this perception that, that there are those who are, who are on the white horse and they're, they're, they're just going to go and do their thing. And here we are to just watch them go and, and just do that amazing work in Christ. And Paul is, is going to address some of that mentality this morning. It gives us a great opportunity to break some of these perceptions down. The Apostle Paul had many rough encounters with his walk with Christ. But I think none of them compared to his concern for the church of Christ, especially the Corinthian church, as we're going to be reading about here this morning. And I want to draw your attention, just by way of introduction, to 2 Corinthians in chapter 11. 2 Corinthians in chapter 11, just to give you a sense of some of the challenges that Paul himself dealt with. Starting in verse 23, it says, Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near to death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Does that sound like a steed riding on a horse to you? 
But this is what I find extremely fascinating about Paul's response here. And he says, and apart from other things, okay, so all that stuff that he just mentioned, all those physical beatings, having been, been stripped apart, often near to death, and he says, and apart from those things, okay, he, so he's standing this out, and he's putting on a pestle, and I want you to see this now, apart from all that stuff I just said, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches, you see, because his anxiety and his, his pastoral ministry of the churches, they didn't even compare to the physical beatings that he was dealing with on a regular basis. You see how he's, he's sort of drawing that out and he's saying, this is the anxiety that I set apart from all other anxieties is my care, my tender loving care over the church. And might I argue that as ministers of the gospel, we are to have the same sort of tender loving care over God's church. Some of the concerns, and I'm going to broad stroke a little bit here, okay? Some of the concerns that pastors deal with on a regular basis, okay? I'm just going to sort of throw this out there, and I realize it's very broad stroked, okay? And it's not anything very specific. I don't have any particular person in mind. But these are the sort of things that we often encounter as leaders in the church. When comfortability trumps contentment, I call this comfortable Christianity, I just want to be put in a very comfortable place where I can just receive the word of God, just soak up God's glory in, my particular, in his particular presence. What about self-promotion when it trumps self-service? It seems today that everybody seems to be striving for the celebrity status kind of mentality. When servant leadership has become and is now perceived as a sign of weakness, especially in the secular world, you talk about servant leadership, they say, oh, no, that's old school news, that's old stuff. But when it comes to serving the church, it is forefront and paramount that there are many children, as it were, with illegitimate spiritual fathers or that they don't even have legitimate spiritual fathers at all. People are placing themselves in a position of spiritual leadership when they should not be. And then there's the other one where people are dismissing pastors as spiritual fathers when they are put in that position. The concern is that there are those who are doing big things for the kingdom, when in fact they are doing very little to contribute anything, if nothing at all, and they are self-deceived. James and Paul both said, be doers of the word and not hearers only. And I want to flip that around a little bit, because there are people who are doing a lot of work, but they're not actually hearing the word, okay? So let's also hear the word and also be doers. And this is one of my favorites, bumper sticker theology. Lauren and I created a new phrase. It's called spiritual junk food, right? It's artificial theology. It's when you hear somebody so influential just put up a phrase, and then you make that your doctrine. That becomes the guiding principle for your life. It appeals to the crowd's appetite. And I can't tell you how many times I've come across people who have had certain convictions based on a Facebook post, a Facebook post. And I ask them, well, why do you feel that way? And in some ways, I challenge them in a loving manner, I, at least I think I am, in a loving manner, and they arrive at the conclusion that they have no spiritual convictions there that's based on any scripture. They were just simply fed spiritual junk food that has no substance in their life. We're concerned about people who haven't suffered for Christ, or they don't even know how to suffer well. There's concern that people are more dedicated to their philosophical perspectives than they are over the souls of men. There's concern that there are some of these so-called followers of Christ who wouldn't even be recognized outside of the congregation of Christ. There's concern over people who underestimate the love of a pastor. Concern over those who think they're men, but they are self-deceived. Concerned over those who think they're women, but they're self-deceived. 
concern over people who don't evaluate themselves properly before God and in thereby doing, they forfeit their humility. There's concern over the, the weak brothers in Christ who judge those who have expressed their Christian liberties. There's concern over the strong brothers in Christ who look at the weak brothers and force them against their conscience to do things they shouldn't be doing. Do you see what I'm getting at? There's so much to be concerned about in terms of pastoral ministry, but I would say that this one trumps all of them when humility has become a lost attribute in the church, when pride is running just entirely rampant all around us. What do you do when the perspective of the world has found its place in the church? Or, or, or even another question, how do you even know that the perspective of the world has found its place in the church? Do we even recognize it when it's happening? What is it that sets the church apart from those cultural corporations, the cultural norms, the secular world, and all those people around us? Well, Paul purposes to answer this question in his letter to the Corinthians, that the distinctiveness of the church wouldn't be lost, but that they would be marked with holiness and faithfulness and humility that we would resist worldly wisdom and instead conform ourselves into the image of Christ and remain distinct from the world. Our text this morning will remind us that the faithfulness of God is our measurement of success and that our faithfulness will be received in scorn by the world around us. Why? It's because the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. The Corinthian church had many problems that Paul is going to address in his letter. And the reason why the Corinthian church had so many problems in that church is that they didn't have an impact on the culture. The culture had an impact on them. It's not unlike our current church today as I see it unfold in America. The church doesn't have a grip on the culture nearly as the culture has a grip on us. And because the culture has a grip on us, there are some deep-rooted problems that Paul wants to work out and Paul must have been very confident with this church, right, in the sanctifying work of God, because if there was any church that Paul should just dismiss and move on with, it would probably be the Corinthian church. And yet, he had major confidence in this church. I mean, this city, this city was one of the most immoral cities in the world. I mean, they, they generated a verb out of this city called Corinthianize. They were to go out and Corinthianize those people. And I remind you, back in 50 AD, Paul came preaching the word of God at the synagogues, as he often does. So the way that Paul goes and plants a church is he finds a nearby synagogue, if there is a synagogue in that particular city, and he makes really good friends with the leaders of the synagogue. And then God works a great work in those leaders. And then they go and they plant a church together. So similar pattern, Paul is out there. He's preaching the word of God to the synagogues. And then in Acts chapter 18, it's recorded, when the Jews of the synagogue heard Paul preaching that Jesus is the Christ... They opposed him, and he resisted him, and reviled him, it says. So Paul shook his garments off, and he said, Your blood be upon your own heads. He was ready to move out of town. He was ready to go to more receptive people. That is, until the Lord spoke to him. And this is where it's recorded in Acts chapter 18, verse 9 to 10. The Lord said, Do not be afraid. Go on speaking, and listen to this. He says, I, this is God speaking, now I have many people in that city. <laughs> now, this is very striking to me because Paul is not one to be afraid, okay? This is a man who would go out boldly proclaiming the gospel of Christ to a people, and then they would stone him to near death, to the point where they actually thought he was dead. They would drag him outside the city limits. He would then get back up, brush off his clothing, and run right back into the city that just stoned him. This is not a man who gets afraid. 
And yet, we read in a very rare occurrence in the Scripture that Paul was afraid. Lord said, do not be afraid. See, Paul faithfully served God because God had commanded him to go into that city. This church then was born out of a direct revelation of God to Paul. God telling Paul, I have many people. You are to go there and you are to speak the word of God. And it is perhaps for this reason that Paul must have known that God truly loved them despite their flaws. Now fast forward and Paul is in Ephesus and he gets word that there are divisions in the church. There are divisions happening among the church. Specifically, they're creating these factions and cliques around their favorite celebrity pastors. There's Paul, there's Apollos, there's Peter, all these factions, right? And where are you going to sit? Are you going to sit in Paul's camp? Are you going to sit in Apollos' camp? Are you going to sit in Peter's camp? Word comes out and people are saying, Paul, there's some serious things going on in this church I think you should be aware of. And so he's going to address that. Now, in my mind, there are two extremes when it comes to the way that we have opinions over Christian leaders. And this causes unnecessary division. The first one is when spiritual authority of a Christian leader is undermined, right? Either their opinion is just as good as yours, so why even bother? Or you choose not to place yourself under the spiritual authority of that pastor. Or maybe there's another celebrity pastor who is your true guy to go to, right? So I really don't care too much about this guy. So mentally what we do is we compartmentalize and we say, oh, I can't respect that pastor, or there's another pastor that I really respect, and, and, he, and it said something that's a little bit different than this one. So that's one of them is when we undermine Christian leadership. The other one is when we over-exalt Christian leadership. Those are the people who say, if there were another prophet that were walking on this earth, surely it would be this man. There's this tendency to exalt and esteem leaders beyond what God would have intended for those individuals. Remember the saying that even the best of men are men at best. The Corinthian church was guilty of both of these. People were getting puffed up in pride over the sort of leaders and, that they were primarily associated with. You know, they were ranking their pastors as number one, two, three, and, and I'm going to just devote my time and energy towards those individuals in rank order. Some of them were saying I'm a Paul. Some of them saying I'm a Peter. Some of them saying I'm a Paulos. And you know, the more that I read about the Corinthian church, the more I'm convinced that they must have been a group of people who loved to be very impressed with things like this, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel of the world. Or I love this one, the PhD professors who take this very simple gospel truth and they turn it into this complex algorithm. And the only way that you can understand these spiritual truths is if you become a spiritual rocket scientist. And so you have to rely on these very intricate and complex designs and algorithms to understand who God is. They appreciated teachers and preachers with the newest styles, the best public presence. They would have loved smoke screens and podcasts and church entertainment hubs all across the world. Surely they would have loved mega churches and programs. They would have loved their philosophies and the newest ways of thinking about things. Right? And Paul recognizes. And, and listen to this. He's about to level out the Corinthian pride. He's going to level them out. Portions of this passage, it just drips with sarcasm. There are very rare occasions where Paul gets as sarcastic because he's going to get with us today. Maybe that's part of the reason why I really want to preach on this because this sarcasm is, it's just striking and it strikes you to the core. And so with that, with that as a background, the context for the message this morning, will you stand with me, church family? And we are going to read the passage that God has set before us this morning. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and we're going to be reading verses 1 through 13. Starting in verse 1, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. 
Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you, you have become kings. And with it you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, and I ask that, you, that we would open ourselves up to, to this area of, of pride and humility, as Paul contrasted to for us this morning. Or may we learn something of, of the Corinthians and of the example of Paul and Apollos in, in terms of how we are to interface with the congregation and the world around us, that we would be not surprised by anything that comes our way as we boldly proclaim the, the Christian gospel. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, I think Paul helps us quite a bit in recalibrating our Christian perspectives on leadership in this passage, and this is how he does it, just in a nutshell, okay? And, and there's an outline to follow along if you want to. He uses two overarching methods to help us with this. Number one, he gives us a criteria for self-evaluation, which produces Christian humility. So how do we evaluate ourselves in a way that produces Christian humility? And number two, he contrasts Corinthian pride with Christian humility, so he shows us what pride looks like, and he says, and this is what humility looks like. And those are the two overarching methods in which he's going to do that. And so how should a person regard Christian leadership? Look at what Paul says in verse 1. He says, this is how, is how one ought to regard us. How would the Corinthians have answered this question, right? This is how somebody ought to regard us. How would the Corinthians have answered this question? They would have viewed their leaders with prominence, with influence, with glory, with fame, with fortune. The last thing on their mind would have been humility and service to other people. What they had in mind was titles, philosophers, and factions. But listen to what Paul has to say, and I love this. He takes his entire system and he just flips it all on its head. He says, first you are to regard us as servants of Christ. Paul has in mind the lowly, humble person. This is a lowly person who, who not only is a servant in the lowly sense, but also has dignity in the way that he serves his master. And the word that's used here is huperetes. It literally means under rower, right? It's like the lowest level of the galley. 
And so it has in mind this lowly person of lowly status. But even though there's a lowly status, there's also a dignity. And we don't want to forget that. Paul is conveying these two truths as a Christian leader when he uses this word. One, the lowly status of a servant. And two, the important responsibilities that are entrusted to that servant. And, and you know, nobody in the pursuit of the dream says, you know what I want to be when I grow up? I want to be a servant. And yet we are told in Scripture that Jesus came into this world, didn't he? Not to be served but to give his life as a ransom for many. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, I would say, I come out not to serve, but to be served. Now, I've done a lot of job fairs in my life, and it's just striking me to think that anybody would ever go to job fairs promoting servitude as a career opportunity, you know? The banner across the back that says, opportunity to serve, become a servant of all. (laughs) I think I'll go to Amazon, thank you very much. You see what Paul is doing, don't you? You see, the people that the Corinthians were associating as these exalted leaders of of prominence, of of reverence, they've now been reduced to mere slaves. Your leaders that you see in that light, Paul says, are to be nothing but servants, the under-rowers, the servants of society. He completely flips their worldview around, and I just love that. Suddenly, these prideful factions are based not on prideful status, but on lowly service. Servants, I pray, like those who are in this room, not masters, not kings, not royalty, not celebrities, but servants of their master and Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul goes on to say that not only are leaders to be regarded as lowly servants, but they're also to be regarded as stewards. He says we are stewards of the mysteries of God The word steward is just another word for subordinate. This is a person who who reports to a master. There's this idea of a delegated authority. The The authority of the steward is limited to what the master has commanded. So you don't get to decide what you do. You actually get your instructions from the master. And what are we to be stewards of? He says, the mysteries of God. We are to be stewards of things like the revelation of the gospel. We are to be stewards of things like the message of salvation to the world around us. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says that it is impossible for the natural person to comprehend the things of the Spirit, but for God's children we have received not the Spirit of this world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. Paul said he decided to know nothing but Christ crucified. I mean, when we talk about the mysteries of God, it is that God came into the world, this God-man, Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life that we could not live. And he died the death that we don't have to die anymore. There's a spiritual reality you will never have to experience. And that is spiritual death because Jesus died that for you. And then he came back to life, and he sits at the right hand of God, and he is the one whom we praise and we give the glory to and we put all our faith in. Paul says, think of us like this, as servants and stewards You see, stewards have no significance apart from their master. Is that right? Right? When you think about those who are serving, you look at the master and you say, you are relevant because of your master. And we are extremely relevant because our master is the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Paul does not say, I want you to think of us as kings, CEOs, managers, and people of influence. This is unfortunately a very common pastoral model. We want to see them as the CEO of a company. They are the company CEO, and then the congregation are, are sort of customers, and then those who serve are, are employees, right? And we kind of create this structure in that sense. The Corinthians would have loved this kind of model. 
But Paul goes on in verse 2 to explain what is required of the stewards. So what is it that is required of the stewards and the slaves of Christ? Nothing but that we be found faithful. We are to be faithful ministers of the gospel. And this is the most important thing, mark this, about your life as you serve Jesus Christ is that you would be faithful. This is the ultimate standard by which we are judged. And these are the sort of duties that God has entrusted to us. You see, there's no mention of eloquence. There's no mention of wisdom. There's no mention of initiative or success. The standard requirement, it really is quite simple. Be faithful. Now, I don't know about you, but that just frees me up. I don't have to just feel like there's so many checkboxes and rules and everything I need to follow. And I'm saying that, that being faithful is an excuse to not do anything. But what I'm saying, though, is wherever God has called me to be, I am to be faithful in that area of ministry that God has called me to, and I can do that with the freedom in Christ. We like to invent so many standards of success in the Christian world. Things like how fast and how big is the church growing? Big church success. How many buildings do you have? Empires, buildings, land equals success. <clears throat> how big is your budget? Big, big budget equals success. How big is your staff? Many staff, success. How many programs do you have? How many small groups do you have? How many conferences have you spoken at? Now, I mind you, these things in themselves are not bad things, right? They can be good for God's glory. But without faith and without a motivation that is rooted in love, they are absolutely meaningless. Paul says that these worldly measures don't matter when you weigh them against what is actually required of us. The steward of God will be measured on the success of faithfulness. Let me give you an example of what this faithfulness looks like. Now, there are many stories in the Bible of people who have expressed faithfulness, but there's one that really stood out to me, a very brief one, an individual who captured my attention in 2 Samuel chapter 23 and verses 11 to 12. <clears throat> this is a man named Shema, and he's a leader of David's army. And the Philistines were launching attack on David's army, and the Israelites saw this massive army coming down the hillside, and they ran. They ran for it. But Shema, he was assigned a plot of land to guard. He said, you know, your role is to guard this bean field of all things. <laughs> God says, your role is to guard the bean field. You're like, but can I, can I guard this other thing over here? Like, can I, how about the horses, you know, the chariots and things like that? You're going to put me on the bean field? Anyway. Shema's been given the example of being steward over the bean field. And as they were launching this full-scale attack on the Israelite army, he stood his ground. And even though everybody else ran for the hills, Shema said, nope, God has instructed me to guard this bean field. And I'm not going anywhere. I mean, this man had confidence in Christ. He had faith unbroken faith. And even though everybody else was running, God blessed him that day, and it says he worked a great victory in him. Think of how foolish it is to think that on the last day, Jesus would ask us, what kind of membership did your church have? Oh, hey, just one more question before I get into the feedback. Um, how big was your budget? I don't know. The budget, we, we tend to hit it right on the spot every time. Well, okay, well, how many programs did you launch? I mean, doesn't that sound so ridiculous? <laughs> None of that will come up, but you can certainly expect faithfulness to be included. Did you proclaim the gospel as it was entrusted to you? Did you preach the whole counsel of God? 
Did you faithfully shepherd the congregation that God had entrusted to your care? Now contrast that against the Corinthian church who would have said, how many TV, radio, podcasts were going on at that time? How many books did you read or write? Were you an influencer on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram? How many podcasts did you record? And did you formulate a philosophy that just shattered everybody's minds? No, friends, we are evaluated not based on those things, but on the standard of faithfulness. When we evaluate according to God's terms, it offers us such great freedom, does it not? I mean, how insignificant do the opinions of other people come when God is your ultimate authority and standard of righteousness and you say, I'm serving Him, not people? Becomes of very little significance. And Paul knows that the Corinthians were critical of their leaders. Look at verses 3 to 5. He says, but with me it is a very small thing that I should that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to the light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God." Now, at first glance, it seems like Paul here is saying, I just simply don't care what you think about me. But that's not true. Paul actually, he really did care a lot about the way people thought. He especially cared about how unbelievers thought about him. And he especially cared about how the weak brothers and sisters in Christ thought about him. But more significant than that, what he's saying is, your judgment towards me is of very little significance. It's likely that these factions were formed by people who thought it was their philosophical and spiritual, you know, duty to judge the leaders of that congregation. How is their wisdom? How is their knowledge? How is their spirituality? Is there lofty speech involved? Are there any other credentials that we need to judge our leaders by? What Paul is getting at is even though he belongs to them, as he said in chapter 3, verse 22, he is Christ's servant first and foremost. The standards of the Corinthians is of little significance to Paul because Jesus is his judge. Paul says that even his own assessment is of little significance. Paul's not saying that he's against self-examination. By the way, I think it's very striking, very impressive that anybody would say, I've evaluated myself and I found nothing. (laughs) I mean, I can probably point to like at least five things in my life, right, as I evaluate myself that I need to improve. Paul says, I've even evaluated myself and I found nothing, but he does value self-examination. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, he says, let a person examine himself. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, and verse 5, Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you. Unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. What Paul is saying is that any human judgment is of little significance, even his own. He will not be judged based on his own personal performance criteria, but rather by his Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And by what criteria will he be judged? By what criteria will he be judged? Faithfulness! Amen! Thank you, sister! (laughs) I was hoping somebody would catch that. You know, there are times, by the way, I have, I have been criticized in my sermon messages for repeating things over and over and over and over again, okay? And I've been saying faithfulness, faith, 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 faithfulness, 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 okay? 
The intent is not to, to treat you as someone who needs to hear it so much. It's just we need to be ingrained about this thought of faithfulness. We need to understand and know that God doesn't judge us based on human criteria. He judges us based on the criteria that is set before us in the spirit of Christ. I'm convinced that some of the most seemingly insignificant people in this world are going to receive some of the greatest, greatest commendations from God. Not because of how their public their ministry was, but because they bought this wonderful faith in every circle that you would find them in. And I could give you personal examples, but time is just escaping me right now. There are wonderful people that I would love to point out. And this gives me such great confidence when I think it in terms of faithfulness, right? Because I'm not interested in tickling your ears. I'm not interested in walking out here and saying, Ozone really shared this wonderful thing that just made me feel so good about myself. Now, I hope you walk out of here feeling really good about yourself, but not because of what I shared with you, but because of the value that Christ has placed before you. You are no less valuable than the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Paul says that the time for judgment will come, so don't go on judging before that time. There is an appointed time for that verdict, but now is not that time. There is another contrast of the Corinthian pride, isn't there, in this passage? Corinthian pride judges people on worldly criteria. The focus is on performance, influence, power, prestige, knowledge, philosophies, and all that. The focus is on favorites versus non-favorites, popularity versus, versus others that are not as popular, sort of popularity contest of sorts. Takes us right back to high school, doesn't it? Apostolic humility, on the other hand, it judges based on God's instruction and discipline. The focus is on God's glory, not man's glory, when it is done right. Paul says that God will bring to light the hidden things and disclose the purposes of the heart. This is more than just the faults that I don't know I have, okay? Like what he's not saying is there are things you don't know that you did and God is going to expose those things to you. No, what it's saying is those things that you did that you know you did, the motives underlying what you did is going to be judged. I can look on the outside like a perfect Christian, but if my motive is not right, that will be judged by God on the last day. Sins that we've hidden will be exposed. Hypocrisies will be exposed. Now, it's difficult to explain and predict what Judgment Day will look like. But personally, I think that we are mistaken if we see Judgment Day as sort of a participation award banquet. Come up and grab your, your trophy and head back to your seat. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says, We must all appear before God and give an account of our deeds, whether good or bad. Now, I think Judgment Day is going to be terribly uncomfortable when we have to give account. It's one thing to see and hear the deeds and the words, but to expose the intentions of my heart? Who wants that? There are many people who will be exposed. Their motives will be exposed before God. Now, some of you are probably asking at this point, well, what about my sins being forgiven? Our sins are brought up, but they are brought up as forgiven sins, we know there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For me, I'm sure there's going to be an exhaustive list of painfully uncomfortable sins that I'm going to have to account for. But where my sins abound, does grace all the more abound? Now, this is not an excuse for sin. Don't, don't, please don't receive it this way. Because we have been expressed to live out our life in freedom. And when you live a life out in freedom, it doesn't mean freedom in your sin. It means you've been freed from sin to follow Christ in the way of righteousness. 
There is no limit to God's grace for the one who puts their confidence in Jesus Christ. For those who will be judged on that day, you will be absolutely forgiven because God is not going to see a sinner. He's going to see the righteousness of Christ in you. Each of us will also receive our commendation from God. I found this really quite fascinating. There's actually potential. Listen to this. There's actually potential that you can please God. This holy and mighty God, benevolent. You can please him, it says. It will be painful, yes, but our reward will be in the words of praise from our Father in heaven. How? The very thing that is difficult for us to do, God does it. Right? Because we are not capable of living out a life of faithfulness by our own merits, by our own strength. We are capable of doing that only through the strength of Jesus Christ. He offers encouragement, and you will say in that day, he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. What beautiful words it would be to hear that coming from my Lord and Savior God, knowing that I've been redeemed in him. I have been freed. That is the reward in Christ. We are told in Scripture that we will receive imperishable crowns. It says that we will receive crowns of rejoicing. We will receive crowns of righteousness. We will receive crowns of glory and life. What wonderful crowns God is going to present before us. But you know what the real beauty and majesty is of those crowns? We are going to be circling our Lord and Savior. And we are going to take all these crowns and we are going to cast them at the feet of our Lord and Savior, who is the one who deserves it, not us. What a wonderful joy that will be for me, friends, to think that I can take this crown that doesn't even belong to me and just cast them at the feet of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What God requires of us is not impressive showboating. It is faithfulness. This is how a proper evaluation is to be done. Now, just dream with me for a moment, will you? Just dream with me for a moment. What would life be like if our hearts were just gripped with gratitude and humility? We would probably treat each other radically different. And, you know, I just find this to be such a great irony in the church. And this is just my opinion, okay? We believe in many doctrines of grace. We believe that God chose us. We know that there isn't anything we can do, there's nothing we can do to earn salvation with God, and yet God chose us. He plucked us out and says, you're mine. We know there isn't any good we can do. And still, Jesus makes it possible for us to be reconciled with God, to enjoy eternity with Him in life and in joy and in peace. But here's where the irony is. Those who claim those same doctrines do very little to infuse this type of humility in their lives. We should be the most humble people on the earth. Grace transforms us that way, does it not? Grace has that leveling effect, like a big construction ball that just comes and tears it down. Do you deserve salvation any more than I do? Do I deserve it any less? You and I were rotten, it says. We, were, we weren't just undeserving, we were ill-deserving. But God, but God, I mean, two of, the, two of my favorite words in all the scripture is but God, the apostolic but, the apostolic however, right? 
But God made a way where there was no other way. Not only did he make a way for you into salvation, but he's making a way now for you to operate among your brothers and sisters in Christ and among a dying world that you would put on the light of Jesus Christ. Pride is leveled. Listen, pride is leveled at the foot of the cross. Now look with me how Paul contrasts this Christian humility with, Christian pride, with Corinthian pride. He exhorts them. He says the church in Corinthian has this mindset that they've somehow arrived, right? And I think that's a beautiful image, by the way. We will arrive someday. But the Corinthians feel like they're already there. And Paul is correcting that. And this is the way he says, like, would that I would be there with you so that I can rule and reign with you. But we're not there yet. Rewind. The mindset that Paul had was humility and knowing that there is more work to be done. Now read with me, verse 6 through 13. He says, And I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. And he says, Use me as an example, and Apollos as an example of what this can look like. For who sees anything different in you? What, have you, what do you have that you did not receive? Right? And he's asking, what do you have that you did not receive? The, the natural answer to that is nothing. You didn't earn it. You didn't take it. You received it. And he's saying, if you received it, why are you boast as if you did not receive it? Why are you treating it as if something you've earned or something that you've somehow taken from Christ? It's not yours. Already you have all you want. Already you become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And with it, you did reign so that, you might share the rule, that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst, and we are poorly dressed, buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and still are the scum of the world the refuse of all things. What an incredible contrast. Here's what he says about the Corinthians. He says, you have all that you want. You've become rich. You've become kings without us. And Paul would welcome the thought if he could just reign with them. But what about the apostles? What about these Christian leaders in the church? By the way, who are the Christian leaders? Are they the pastors? No. No. We have all been called into a position of leadership among God's people. We are all the priesthood of Jesus Christ. We are all kings and queens of the kingdom of God. They're getting beat up. They're getting persecuted. They are getting persecuted, mark this, for their faithfulness. The very thing that Paul says you're going to be judged on is the very thing that you will be persecuted on. The sort of imagery that Paul paints here is not that, is, is not that of, of CEOs and managers. It's a triumphal parade that took place when conquering general would take prisoners. Now imagine, all right, this amazing victory has taken place in the war field. Who comes through that door the first thing after you come back home? The king. The king walks through that door because it is the king who won that victory. And there are a group of massive people who are ready to celebrate the king. And then comes the you know, the soldiers and all those who had fought so bravely with it. But last on display, the last ones that come through that door were those who had, they, they had captured in the war field, and they're going to go to the arena, and they will die. 
Paul is saying we are those people. We're not the people in the front. I mean, this is so hard to say. We're the ones in the back. We're the ones who have been captured. We are the ones who will be put to death, is what Paul is saying. I hope you see by now that ministry was never intended to be this glorious, triumphal venture with big salaries, big crowns, adoration from others. Instead, Paul says, we are the guys at the end of the line. And who is it that exhibits the apostles last of all? Who is it that puts them last of all? God. God puts them last of all. And this flies in the face of Corinthian over-triumphal, over-spiritualized Christian lifestyles. Paul didn't come bearing a message of triumph and glory to the believer. He came bearing a message of the cross, suffering and death. That is your end, is what he's saying. But not in the worldly sense, in the glorious sense, because there is a glory to follow. Remember, Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me. He didn't say, pick up your burdens and follow me. He says, pick up your death instrument and follow me. He doesn't say, deny chocolate for a month and then come and see me. He says, deny yourself. And not just for a month, but for a lifetime. He says, deny yourself Christian brother, sister in Christ, you are no longer king of your life. Jesus is king of your life. The true message of the gospel is not a popular one. We don't hear this radical cross of a, a radical call of this, this cross-centered lifestyle that we are to live out in obedience to anyone in this cultural context anymore, do we? We hear the Corinthianized gospel, I'm rich, I'm royal. And you contrast that to what Paul says. He says, I'm captive. I've been called to die. I am on display. Paul says, we are fools, but you are wise. The foolishness of God in the eyes of the world is God's wisdom. We are weak, but you are strong. I mean, it just drips with sarcasm. The weakness of God in the eyes of the world is God's power. The cross is the power of God on display. You are held in honor, he says, and we in disrepute. You see what the gospel does to our worldview? It completely flips it on its head. Paul was considered a fool from the world's perspective. If you are a Christian, the world looks at you. Mark this. If you are a Christian, the world looks at you and thinks you are a fool. So come to grips with it and accept that. You are the scum in the sight of the world to think you believe in this old book about a Jewish Messiah, this God-man who died on the cross and who was raised from the dead and he's coming back again. People actually pity us for thinking this. They pity us. The message of the cross is not a popular one. Paul understood that, which is why he said, when I am weak, then I am strong. There is nothing amazingly impressive about the gospel from the worldly perspective. It is a cross. It is shame. It is weakness. It is foolishness. It is death to self. But we are not to fear that because that same message, which is weakness to the world, is wisdom and power of God to us. Amen? This is what we mean when we say don't empty the cross of its power. The apostles were thirsty, they were hungry, they were homeless, they were persecuted, and they were slandered. And I think if we were really honest with ourselves, 
We are more like the Corinthians than we would like to admit. And I think a part of the reason for that is that we haven't experienced suffering like Paul did. Paul points out the opposite of what you'd expect in this world so that the gospel would stand out. Your suffering actually brightens and illuminates the gospel of Jesus Christ. It puts his glory on display. Your suffering puts his glory on display. The gospel is not a palatable message. And now let me conclude with this summary, okay? According to Paul, here's what the gospel does. It strips you. It strips you naked of all of your pride. It is all stripped away. And what remains in the sight of the world when all that pride is stripped away? You are the scum of the world and the refuse of all things. We are refuse. We are scum. We are the rubbish of the world. You know that dirt underneath your fingernails? It's good for nothing. That's you. (laughs) You know that stuff that, as you throw your garbage away, it just sort of leaks over the side of the can, and then it dries up. And then somebody else throws the garbage, and then it leaks over the side and dries up. And then over time, it just kind of like creates this crispy nastiness. Paul says, that's you. The Bible is so brutally honest, right? Like I said, there's such freedom in presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ. In this present age, you must brace yourself, brace yourself for this kind of suffering because that is our lot right now. That is our lot. The best of our life is not now. It is the future glory. The cross precedes the crown. Suffering precedes glory. How many of us have already began to glory? There is still work to be done. And just one final note, okay? For any of you who are in this room who have not put your full trust and faith in Jesus Christ, in his first coming, he came with humility. He came in suffering, and he came in servitude, okay? And he is good and gracious. And that is the posture and the demeanor that the church still has today, It is better that you would approach Christ with that posture today in humility and gratitude and goodness and grace than the future coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when he does come back, he's coming back on the white horse. He's not coming back on a donkey like his first coming. He's coming back on the white horse. And when he comes on the white horse, he's coming to conquer. He's coming to destroy. He's coming to judge. Sword will come out of his mouth and he will smite his enemies. And it is better that you'd be caught in the grace of God than under the wrath that's going to be exhausted by the Lord Jesus Christ on that day when it comes. There is still work to be done, and we have been called as God's children to go out and present the gospel of Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this message that is a reminder of pride. It is a reminder that there's this pound of flesh that still haunts us to this day. Now, we know that that Corinthian church was filled with faith. Paul started his letter commending them for their faithfulness, Lord. And and that means that that there's something to be said for that, that even as we carry this pound of flesh, it is that faithfulness that is to, to triumph over the sort of pride that we would experience on any given day. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us strip that pride away, Lord. As we engage with church leaders, may we be engaging them with a heart of humility, a heart of gratitude, and a heart of reverence over the ministry that you have called them to. And Lord, likewise, may we step up into Christian leadership. May we be the ones who look on us in scorn 
as hard as it is to say that. Because of the boldness of the gospel that is being preached in every single one of us. We love you, Lord, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'm going to give you all an opportunity to...